Welcome to CISO's Insiders Podcast. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing leading CISOs in the industry for a light conversation about anything from their favorite drinks to favorite vendor to key influencers, biggest accomplishments and failures, myths they like to debunk, advice they want to give out, and even some tips they can extend to the eager vendor who's knocking on their door. Join us for a light talk. I encourage you to walk away with at least one insight that will help you better yourself or your business. Uh, welcome and thanks for joining us. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Thais Bano. I'm, I'm hoping I pronounce your name correctly. Perfect. The Seas of Sisons. Thais has an extensive background in cybersecurity. He spent some time in the retail industry, in banking, in product security, in consulting companies, and he is on the board of various companies as well as an investor in SVSCI Group, which is, as far as I understand, it's a group of CISOs that invest and provides guidance to startup companies in the cyberspace. Um, now, I'm sure I missed out on a lot, Ty. We don't really, you know, personally know each other, so I would be more than happy if you could introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, I'd be happy to share a little bit. So, you know, my name's Ty Spano. Uh, I work in security. I've been doing it for over 15 years, and I think we're going to unpack quite a bit of it. But, you know, if I were to give the quick synopsis of what I do, like I'm a security practitioner. Uh, while I am a CISO on paper, a chief security and trust officer for this wonderful data analytics company called SciSense, uh, I am a person that likes to be hands-on keyboard. Uh, and every time I find myself going up market, growing into larger roles, I still like to do, uh, because I think there's a lot of reality in execution um, and not a lot of reality in always PowerPoint making or just generating metrics to tell stories. Like that's part of the role. And for me, always going to be a practitioner when it comes to my craft and my craft is information security for my career. So that's a little bit about me, mostly FinTech, a lot of FinTech, but I can tell you, I've fallen in love with the startup realm, uh, not only for putting on various hats, taking on a lot of interesting challenges, but also now on the flip side, you mentioned SVCI. Uh, I've had a chance to join this wonderful team of chief information security officers, current and former, where we help very interesting, unique startups that are solving very good problems. But the difference for us we're investing in people and that's how I live my life. I invest my time, energy, and now I have this other opportunity, some minor amount of money to partner and work with these organizations. And the goal to make sure that they're really solving problems, that they're really attacking the problem the right way. Cause I don't know, you, you've probably been through it where you see some technology that just works so well, but their sales team doesn't know how to sell it. Their CEO may talk a little strangely, you know, like whatever it may be, and sometimes they don't become as successful as they should in helping solve certain problems in the security arena. And they get bought out very early, either by bleeding out too much or they're successful very quickly and someone wants to get them out of the market. And I think that's part of what we're trying to do is help these companies grow up to that place and make the right exit, make the right decision, because we see that they're adding value to not only our shops and our team, but also our network and our peers when we're like, hey, what are you doing for mobile security? This is what I'm looking at. I used to do that for fun to help really good people. And I can tell you, some of those companies are still doing really well, but it was fun to see like when in banking, I mentioned this company to a friend that's trying to solve a problem. They're like, can you connect me with that person? And that was the best way to introduce them to the company as opposed to the cold email or something like that. So I think we'll get more into it, you yeah. know, uh, but generally I'm a security practitioner. I've been doing this a while. 
Okay, yeah, and that's uh, that's really interesting what you said about SVCI. I, I've been hearing a lot of good things about them, and I think you're the um, maybe third uh, chief information security officer out of that group that I've I've been talking to, and cool. and yeah, I think I think you know the one of the differentiators is as you, as you mentioned, like I think the one of the uh, one of the one of the hurdles th these days when vendors want to come and talk to CISOs is, as you mentioned, the cold email approach, the cold approaches. These do, do not really work when, when you try to, to engage with the CISO. Uh, so, you know, eventually everybody goes back to the network and, you know, ask around. And, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate what, like what, what it is you guys are doing there. So uh, definitely. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Yeah, people should listen to Ian Amit's uh, interview that you did with him, because I think he said it best, you know, when you get those three cold emails and they're like, they contour it, they add a little funniness and humor and you're like, ah, oh, it's kind of good. But then they send one more and it's like, this is the last email. And you're like, he's like, please let it be because I'll respond now <laughs> if it's the last one, like stop. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I think, I think his interview was fantastic. I think the format and the flow is great to kind of hear someone with really great background and experience. That's, that's like one of those leaders that, that you can learn a lot from just by sitting down and listening for 60 minutes. And I think he crafted a really good narrative to kind of flow through that conversation. So good job on kind of building out this interview series and thank you for having me. And thank you for joining. Uh, so just, uh, you know, a couple of other quick questions before we dive right in. Uh, I like to ask my interviewees about their marital status. I'm, uh, I've been married 10 years now. Uh, I'm coming up on 11 in a very short time period. Uh, my wife and I are at that stage. We skipped the, like the big 10 last year because pandemic was starting to hit and we're like, what are we going to do all this stuff for? And it's like, it was weird, uh, but going into year 11, you know, we, we are so aligned in our marriage and our journey together. My wife dabbles a little bit in security. She's a technical project manager at Crunchyroll, which is Alicia Media. Uh, it's an anime streaming company. And it's cool because when we moved to San Francisco, it was for one of my jobs uh, and she played the long game. She had a, you know, an offer or two on the table with companies that were kind of interesting, but she's like, I really, really want to work for this company, Crunchyroll. Like it is my dream job. And lo and behold, through patience, perseverance, and just natural personality, like she got the job and the opportunity and she's been there for like, I think four years now. And it's, it's wonderful to see our partnership and how this works because I work in the security space. She's technically working in all parts of DevOps operations and security and privacy. And our conversations like cross over quite frequently and it's, it's a knowledge exchange. It's a whole different paradigm of how we interact. And, you know, I don't know if it's robotic or anything, but it, it is just, it's kind of funny to me now that we're working from home, mm -hmm. you know, and she's like, oh, I heard you mention this. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm like, why are you listening? But then she's like, oh, we're looking at this company. Can, can I ask some questions? So it's, it's been really cool. I think just, just in this pandemic time of like, maybe it is a little bit of information leakage, but the opportunity to get to know your partner, how they operate, what they're doing, how they run their schedule and finding balance between each other. So for me, my marriage is one of the cornerstones of success as well as like, we have a team here and this is our company called the Spano company, you know, like that's, that to um, me is very powerful. Yeah. And that's great to hear. Uh, what about your favorite drink? Ooh, uh, it's water. It's really, really clean water. Um, you know, in pandemic times, uh, I think the social aspect of like 
drinking has changed so much that I can, I can count on the number of hands. Uh, it's one, it's probably this many times that I've actually been drinking with someone. And, and for me, it's whiskey. Uh, I love Nika Japanese style whiskey, but my, my like favorite scotch is Talisker tenure, uh, which is, uh, from the Islay of sky, um, probably have consumed that one since I was 20 something till now. But I think the world of whiskey has opened up so much more that there's just a lot. And yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting to see how many people are into brown liquors and all that. But as pandemic has gone on, I'm like less and less, am I compelled to drink? Uh, it's about health. It's about sanity. It's about a strong immune system. And I think that's where I've focused more of my energy on like, how do I keep this thing healthy and all of this healthy? That's great. Uh, okay, let's dive right in. Um, what's the one thing you wish you'd known when you begin your career? Balance. Um, yeah, when I take a step back and I think of doing security for 15 years, and when I left university, like my undergrad, I was working full time uh, as well. So I, I, I had started in an unhealthy place. And my first job of all things was security consulting. Uh, so as you can imagine, uh, the goal of a security consultant is to be billable and to add value. And I maximized that as much as I could. And I reflect back on the times I had a hundred chargeable hours in a week or 70 in a week. And how do you do that? Well, you like work really, <laughs> really hard and having multiple clients and executing efficiently. Um, and hopefully you have partners and peers that are assisting you, but in consulting, depending on how staffing goes, Sometimes you just get multiple projects back to back and it's, that's just how it goes and you've yeah. got to get it done. Uh, but that's also your opportunity to learn as much as possible. So I think while I say balance, if I didn't put in all those hours for the front 10 years of my career, I don't know if I'd have the knowledge, the wisdom, the experience to do what I'm doing now as a CISO in a global organization. Uh, so while, while it's easy for me to say balance now of, I wish I slept more, I wish I took care of my mental sanity a little bit more. Um, I don't know if I would have been able to achieve all those things. And I was working at this company called Pertivity under a guy named Scott LaLiberty. Uh, he's still there, still running the shop. Uh, but you know, there were times of frustration when I was working those hours and, and my professionalism would kind of waver because I didn't know how to manage that. You'd be stressed, you weren't sleeping, you were traveling around the world, going from client to client. You hadn't been in your apartment for three weeks and you're like, can I just, you know, work from home for a day, please? You're like, no, no, if you're in the city, you got to come to the office. And you're like, do you understand how chargeable I've been? Um, so when I take a step back from that and I look into my current world now, that balance piece, it is a really important mantra of how I manage my team, how I manage myself. And the struggle, I think, last year of pandemic times was, where are you going? What are you doing? Why aren't you available online? And, and for our team internally, we actually started working on different things. Like, cool, we know how to do meetings. We know how to work well as individuals. We know how to partner. What we don't know how to do in this new time is unstructured time. So I'm like, hey, let's, let's set up an hour a week and just hang out, you know, because we miss those cooler moments, you know, the, the water cooler moments, the, the standing in the kitchen of the office moments, the let's go get lunch together and not have an idea of where we're going moments. When you start to create that unstructured time, it actually allowed for our team to just chill, you know, to relax, to be, you know, and, and, and while we missed those things from literally a year ago, we've now started to create that balance in our work schedule. 
So now even more adjustments of like, how do we work? Because the idea of core hours for us, it doesn't make sense. It's about availability. It's about managing your schedule. But the reality is it's about outcomes. And if you're achieving the outcomes, you can achieve that balance much more effectively. So I think, you know, when I think about the full gamut of my career, uh, just making sure you take care of yourself as priority number one, and you don't forget because you have so many goals, so many outcomes that you get too addicted to that serotonin or that gratification of crushing a goal and then having the next one ready to go. You need to take the breathers. You need to take the downtime and you need to be able to make sure that you have moments where you're a little bit uncomfortable because you have unstructured time and you don't have to just be doing. So that's, that's definitely one of my lessons. Yeah, and I think you really hit the spot with the, you know, unstructuring time. I think uh, since COVID started, I think that was one of the major challenges for pretty much everybody. Uh, I know I can attest to myself, but uh, yeah, definitely, I think, uh, and, and you, you really articulated uh, that well, you know, those cooler moments, those going out to lunch moments, we kind of miss it right now. We, we can't have it, right? Now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay. Um, so moving on, what's, what's, what was your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? I've had so many, you know, but I think the biggest failures, when we look at it at a, like a top level, I'll narrow it down in a minute, but it's failing fast. You know, I, I think when you really fail, it's not a big deal because that's when you get better. Like the, the successes, the wins, uh, if you had a, a POC that went really smooth, but implementation was hard, like, so what, you know, I, I think that's really the way we need to look at life as opposed to you fail once you got to change careers, you got to switch, you absolutely can't go and do that job anymore. Like those are the things that are a little bit scary. I think that balance piece that we talked about is really critical in how you manage your failures. So when I kind of analyze my career, as far as failures, um, I will say it was uh, my relationship at home and I went and got my master's uh, and I'll, I'll share a little bit of my personal life. So I got my master's from Norwich university, uh, my undergrad from Penn state university. When I was getting my master's, I was at capital one financial. I had support from the organization. They helped even put some of the bill for getting that uh, additional education, which was really great. Uh, but you know, the time piece wasn't there 18 month intensive program, uh, all online, except for the last two weeks. So I already know how to work remote. Um, but one of the main issues that came up was I did not have unstructured time during that 18 month window. And maybe I had a week or two in between semesters, but I, I did not prioritize time very effectively. So I, I learned who my friends were very quickly. Uh, my family got a little distant because of my own doing. My wife was upset with me, you know, with the amount of time and energy, especially in my last semester, like I could feel it. And I'm like, I can't wait for this to be over. And on top of all of this, I was doing professional kickboxing coaching. So um, I didn't sleep, which was the other part of this. So my biggest failure was not giving the support or the emotional investment back into my relationship at home. But luckily, you know, I have a partner that believes in the journey of where we're going together. Um, so we're going to have those ups and downs. But I, I think for me, that that was the biggest thing. And I've had other moments throughout that time where I remember I was short uh, as far as my attitude, um, how I was communicating, like, please leave me alone. And I would say it with swear words, I'm working on an incident, plus I got to turn in this paper, plus I got to do this thing for this other person. So I'm going to skip dinner. 
you eat, you eat alone. And that was the wrong thing to do. So for me, it's really understanding that balance and what's important to you, uh, as opposed to always being focused on what are those goals. Okay. Wow. Uh, that's very honest. And, and thank you for sharing that. Uh, but, uh, but having touched on that and, yep. and again, it's, it's very honest and transparent of you. What would you say your biggest accomplishment was? The biggest accomplishment, like the, the, the cool thing is like, I have a pattern for it and it's not a thing. It's people. Um, for me, I was an IC for the first um, the, the first third of my, my, my career. I want to know that I can do that's part of being a practitioner. Like I should be able to do, if I can only tell people what to do, then I'm not a very good practitioner. And this is how I live my life with everything. It's hard for me to tell you how to get better at being a security analyst or a security manager or a security leader. If I haven't been down that path, uh, some people can tangentially explain like the ideology behind, you know, I read this in a book and this is how we do risk management. That's, that's great. That's great in a book, but I can tell you building relationships does not come from that book. That building relationships comes from working with people. It comes from the feeling you provide them. So for me, the feeling that, that gives me the biggest accomplishment are the people that have transformed their careers. And typically, this is the pattern, from a developer to a bad a security engineer, security manager security leader, future CISO, like literally they've taken what their job was, which was in a different job category and family. And they found just through this natural inclination, they're like, Ty, Hey, I've always been curious about security. Like, how do I learn more? And then once I hear that, I'm like, Oh, I can help you. You're a tinkerer. Aren't you? Like you like to ask questions and then find out the answer. Let's go explore this together. And, you know, I, I think there's a few folks that really stand out to me. One of the earlier ones was Russ Wright at Capital One. Uh, another one was Matt Stanchek at Capital One. He eventually made it to Home Depot. And now I just caught up with him about a month ago. He's over at HP Fortify as a solutions architect. Um, he was literally an amazing engineer I had worked with, with fixing opportunities in the organization. We had a security champions program that we had to chats with. Eventually an opportunity came up on my team to build out static analysis full cycle, he builds another static analysis program for a large retailer, full cycle, he's now at the company with the technology that he was rolling out in the beginning of when he learned static analysis. And it's completely changed the trajectory of his career and his joy too. And when I catch up with folks like that, it's very heartening to know that you were part of that journey. So, so for me, the biggest accomplishments are typically when people transform their lives through this thing called information security. Yeah, and and you know that this brings me to my next question, and actually that's a very interesting, probably longer conversation because uh, I think, um, like you, I've been you know talking to a lot of uh, professionals in the past uh, probably twenty years, definitely in the past twelve years since I founded my company, and you know as as you know as a consulting company, we we have a lot of consultants coming and going, and you know being there as part of their journey in, you know, and, and part of their growth and seeing like some of those consultants that, you know, came to you sort of, I wouldn't say greenfield, but almost, and, you know, then being able to, to educate them, to, to contribute to them. And even, and even after they're out the door and, you know, starting working for a, 
for a company, for another vendor, for what, for whatever it is. And, you know, seeing their growth and transitioning into Caesar roles and other roles, that's, I think that's very fulfilling. And, you know, even till this day, I, I have some all kinds of conversation with people that, you know, seek some advice on, on what to do next or how to get started. And this is actually my next question. Uh, mm. If you have, if you had like, like one piece of advice or possibly two pieces of advice, because everyone's different, every path is different, you know, you can't really retrace or recreate but if you could give like an advice to someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours what would that be you know i think ian said it best you know be certain right like th this this job in information security is not easy it's not for the faint of heart or people that can't handle risk or analyze things <clears throat> i think the challenge is you need to be able to critically think. And I think where we're at in the world today, we're really great at feeling. And feeling isn't always thinking because your emotions get in the way of how you analyze problems or situations. Like, oh my God, we have a botnet attacking, every account's getting logged into, what do we do? Yeah, you know, are people dying? Like that That used to be my old mantra when I was banking a long, long time ago. And I'm like, yeah, are people dying? Okay, so so we'll be all fine. It's just money, you know, and money, like, then that's a whole nother narrative. But in the moments of like, okay, Katrina just hit, people need access to currency. How are we as a company going to figure that out? The last company I was with prior to the current I'm one now, Lending Club, I worked with amazing engineers there. Um, probably some of the best I've ever dealt with in my, my career from an empathy standpoint. Uh, the company itself has a really good business model. It's around people's relationships with money and transforming it through micro loans and going from like a massive credit card piece of debt with 30% APR. Like it's just driving you wild as far as how much money people are losing by staying in the cycle of debt. But at this company, when there were different storms happening out of Texas, when there were a lot of things happening in America, the engineers came up with an idea to say, hey, what if we forgave loans if they're in this specific geographic region? And I was like, uh, we don't we don't have functionality like that. Another engineer looks over, he's like, yeah, but we have the data to do that. Oh, we do have the data. So now what if we proactively analyze this information, sent the email, sent a communication to get down to them to say, we understand times are tough. Here's what's going on. Here's what the next thing is. So that whole life energy starts coming back. And I'm like, wow, I'm working with great people. And it's really heartening because we usually deal with all the risk, the scary stuff of security. And uh, while I say be certain, you know, you're going to find yourself in really great situations too. There are the bad ones. I've been in the bad ones where I'm arguing with lawyers. You know, I've been in the bad ones where they're just saying, is this technically a breach? And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, how are we defining breach? You know, like based on these laws and these definitions. And then there's technical nuances to encryption. There's technical nuances to uh, encoding. Like there's, there's all these things that as you start breaking down how technology really works, it's not always an easy answer. But I can say for anyone that's pursuing to become a CISO, be ready to critically think and also explain how you're looking at problems in an effective way because your business leaders, your CEOs are always going to ask you, how are we doing? And if... Sometimes like me, you know, I'm like, I'm not doing great. Here's why. And they're like, what do you need from me? 
And I'm like, the continued support that you provide me. And I'm thankful that you asked that question because that's the company I work in now at SciSense. Uh, my, my, my CEO, Amir Arad, like every time, like there's an incident, he's my direct boss, you know, outside of that, I report to Leon Gendler, the SVP of R and D, and it's a very cordial relationship, but understand, like I report into the person that manages all of product, all of R and D, like all of these things that are being created and that can create some turmoil between us. And I think that that type of relationship management is very challenging when I have to report out to the board of like, here's where we're at. And I also have to talk not so positively about like my direct boss too. And even within my team, as I'm educating them on those challenges, they're like, that does not sound easy. And I'm like, but the difference for me is through the time, the experience, the working through many challenges. Like if you can critically think about how we're looking at the business and take your emotional aspect out of it, it's not difficult because you're a professional and this is what we do. So I, I think that's really the, the sentiment here is like, make sure you have the critical thinking capability and not just say, hey, there's a CVE, it's high vulnerability and like we should panic because the rest of the world is panicking. Don't do that. Don't be that person. Be the person that grounds it, brings back business context, brings back actual articulation of knowledge and understanding of the business. You become a real security practitioner in my book at that point. Yeah, and, and thank you for that. But wouldn't you also say that, uh, you know, for a very, let's consider a noob in, in the industry. Sure. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that like building a sound enough baseline of, of knowledge, like, you know, being able to discuss or touch on various information security domains, you know, application security, DevOps, uh, uh, procedures and policies and standards and regulations. Wouldn't you say to to have like a, a as broad a baseline as you possibly can would help you get to that point where you can actually think uh, in a critical manner and, and you know, be, become that security professional? Yeah, I think that's a super valid point. So I started in security consulting, but like I mentioned, I was working full-time before I got into that. So I had some real experience like running networks, domain management, troubleshooting email clients, like all the things that come with like help desk. And when I shifted over into consulting, I think that perspective, that empathy of like configuring tools, configuring hardware, understanding backups don't always work. Um, that allows you to have those intelligent conversations, I think, more effectively. Like if you're just a security analyst that actually has not done anything, let it be engineering, DevOps, webmaster, you know, name, name a subject, I think you're going to have to work a little bit harder to get that base. Because as something as simple as saying, hey, we got to harden our servers. Ben, we got to harden these servers. And you're like, cool, tell me what to do. And you're like, CIS benchmarks. And it's like, oh, oh now what? You know, it's like, okay, yeah, they are industry leading. They do work really well, but explain that to other folks on why. Um, because I think that base that you mentioned is really critical to have to unpack for other people that are not going to be experts in the why. And, and I, I, I fundamentally believe like if you can't do that part of the job, then again, if you just want to be like a scanner jockey where you push a button and then you get results and you throw the PDF over like, those are the folks that, that I think are going to struggle in this space. It's the ones that not only can configure the tool, can push the button, can analyze the results, but then can translate that language into syntax that your engineer or your leader can understand. I think that's really the important part of security practitioner work. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, 
and uh, you mentioned that you report to the to the VPRND. Um, I, I believe I I know Leon, uh, and <laughs> specifically, he's very security cognizant, and he's very you know very he's actually I'm not sure if 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 he's like like the like the common you know like the common. Uh, uh, leaders that you that you you would encounter, but w what do you feel about you know the role of the CISO being a part of that organization? In your case, it's the R and D. In some other cases, it might be the IT organization. In some other cases, you might be reporting directly to the CEO. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. Um, I always have a slide ready to go in my uh, quarterly business review meetings with the board, um, and and really. I don't care who I report into as long as we have the outcomes that we expect of our organization. So if I report through Leon, great. He is awesome. He's probably one of the best managers that gives me freedom, but also trust me. So when I tell him hard stories, there can be pushback and I always let him know, like, you know, you can tell me to go pound sand and you can tell me not to do anything. You could cut my budget. Like you're my manager. That's how it works on paper. Right. I'm like, I would only stick around so long if that kept happening, but you have the authority to do that. And sometimes if that's what it's gotta be, that's what it's gotta be. But in working with him for the past two years as SciSense acquired Periscope data, it's not been that. It's been of openness, kindness, and thoughtfulness as far as how we interact. Yes, sometimes there's a lot of pushing and shoving when it comes to like, we gotta fix this situation before it becomes a real problem. And that's how I try to lead through a lot of these changes. Like, I don't wanna wait until we have an incident but I also had to build an incident response process that was really articulated and understood and got to the point of how we communicate to customers if there's a problem. Uh, but it's no different than saying, hey guys, this one's probably gonna be a big issue, but maybe it won't. But I need, I need, I need rationalized information to tell me how big of a problem is it for us? Because I don't have that visibility to say to this DC, this data center, or I don't have visibility to you know our customers on-prem with their hosting. I need information from product. I need information from IT. Uh, and then we collaborate to make a decision together. And I think that relationship, again, it really just depends on how effective, how are you perceived? And when you really need to push and you know pull the fire alarm to say, folks, I appreciate everyone's opinions, but right now it's not time for anyone's opinions besides like this one. And here's what this one opinion is we need to go do this. And I'll go talk to our general counsel. They'll say, do we have to do this? And I'll go, yes. And then we move forward with that type of situation. But I think it's contextual as well. Uh, but I think reporting structures, like I've been through the CFO, uh, I've been through the CIO, I've, you know, like I've not found it to matter all that much as long as you maintain a healthy relationship and understand like you're hiring experts around you, let them do their jobs. Right. Like that's the thing. And if, if that trust is truly there and you know, you're all doing it for the right reason, you will end up with great results. And, and that's the way I anchor myself. And if you look at my career track record, I usually stick around the places where that is happening. If that's not happening as much, I'm there for about a year. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the other part. Mm -hmm. So in other words, and I think I see a silver lining here, what, you know, that you, that we, that you weave throughout your answers, as long as the culture is good, as long as you have good relationships with people, as long as, you, as you're able to capitalize on that, 
these are the types of companies that you tend to stay in and and, and this is what you're looking after you you're not really i mean it doesn't really matter it's what you're saying it doesn't really matter if you report to the vprnd or the, to the cio as long as you have good working relationship and the culture is is sound yep i'm a yeah. builder period yeah. like I, I i like i like looking at challenging problems whatever they may be and i want to work with people that want to solve problems and I, you know, I think there's a place for every steady Eddie out there that, you know, likes to make the widgets and do the thing over and over and over. And, and you need that sometimes in the team too. Uh, but where we're at in our journey as a late stage data analytics company, we're building as we're going. Mm -hmm. To me, that's super exciting. And what I used to do in, you know, fortune 500, 111, like transformation was really important to me because if, if what we do today just works and we're set up for the future, great. But I can tell you working in companies where that's not the mentality, it's about like, we have to build for the future that we believe to be true. How do we do that before we actually need to do it? That used to be my MO. Like that's what I was always charging after. And then I'm like, what if I just went to a startup where I didn't have to decouple and like break all these things and then get to like the fresh process? What if I was just part of a team that we were building these things and you know, I got that inspiration while I was at Capital One doing M&A work, uh, mergers and acquisitions for uh, various startups, mobile companies. And it was just interesting to see the dynamic and the difference between like a 10, 20, up to 50 person startup compared to 40,000 human beings in one organization where, yeah, it might be too big to fail. But it's also, there's so much there that it's hard to change and turn that ship. Like when you're on the Titanic, you got to slowly turn it versus you're in these agile shops that can just turn on a dime and say, you know what, Ben, our new business model is no longer consulting. We're selling this product that this one person made. And you're like, oh, that makes sense. You know, because you can, you can, you can do that. And I think that's different compared to being so large. Uh, so yeah, I think the silver lining as far as how you fit into the culture, how you choose to be a part of it, and also you create the culture, right? So that, that is, that is the other part. I'm part of a culture that I'm helping create. I'm not just part of a culture. And if you're given the honor and the opportunity to do that, 100% be a part of it. And even if you don't realize you're doing it, you are doing it. Even if you're part and showing up to the meeting, speaking up on a meeting, providing input, giving feedback, that's all important. But if you're just a passenger in the journey, then you're just kind of seeing the culture, right? And and that that goes back to the builder mentality. Yeah. And I think you've uh, briefly touched uh, on my next two questions, but let me just run them by you again. What are the best resources that have helped you along the way? I'm assuming it's people related. Yeah, for sure. It's people related. I think formal education, I question. Uh, I don't know how you feel about formal education and certifications. Like I, I, I have all that stuff. Um, did it make me a better practitioner? Yes, but I'm not sure. Like, I'm not 100% sure if that's that's real or not. I can tell you my practical work experience and functional relationships of having someone that I can always go to with a question or an inquiry is so much more compelling. And, and now being in a, like an official CISO role, I interact with more CISOs. So when I have questions and I'm just thinking about it, like, okay, cool. Like what happened last year that was so strange that like all this fraud is increasing for unemployment. Oh, that's interesting. And then you kind of like poke around your friends and everyone's like, yeah, we've been seeing a little bit of that, but you know, our finance team is top notch. So anytime they come in, they check like, is it a former person? Oh, that's not even a real human being that was ever here or was a contractor. So it's, it's interesting to see 
how your network really influences your thought pattern and your critical thinking because you're looking for real input. Um, but it just depends. Like if you're at those fortune fifties and hundreds, you can't always do that. Like you're not always granted the opportunity to get that information. And sometimes you have to pay a third party to go do research on your behalf to get that info or that intelligence. And, you know, I think it's about complexity and the nature of the game, but as an individual, it, it could be your manager. It could be your peer, it could be your former, you know, founder of GRC that's calling you up to say, Hey, just wanted to see how things are going. And you have a question. It's okay to ask those questions because I think most people want to help each other. Yeah. And, and I, I think you've mentioned a few names, uh, you know, a few minutes back, but were there any like uh, two or three specific individuals that you can name drop that really helped you and have been the most influential to you? Yeah, I talk about them quite a bit. So Sydney Klein is like the, the big one in my book. She's the CISO over at Bristol Myers Squibbs. Uh, she was the, I forget her official title. She was basically deputy CISO at uh, Capital One Financial. I joined when it was a top 10 financial. I left when it was a top five. And she helped me, supported me. And the big thing for me was she actually supported my wife too. So she was doing like spot mentoring for my wife who was figuring out what to do in her career. And it was just interesting to see that type of investment, which I've never had that type of leadership before and ever or since. And it was a really great example of someone that was investing more than just you and understanding if someone's great at home, they're going to be phenomenal in the workplace. If someone's stressed at home, they're going to struggle at work. And even how we do teamwork and how we build relationships I look at her as the person that helped transition me from an army of one mentality of like, I can do all this by myself to, oh, with a unified vision, with a strong narrative, with appropriate communication and storytelling skills, we can mobilize all of us to charge towards something much bigger than one of us as individuals can, can do. And uh, one of her direct reports, Brian Orm, uh, he is one of the principals over at GuidePoint Security now. Um, he's been in my corner for the first day I met him. Now, when I joined Capital One, he actually went out on a paternity leave and he was out for like three weeks. So I had to fend for myself, but it was really cool to see like our relationship during the time that he was there. He just gave me a lot of really useful tricks in communication and also this tactic of leading through questions. So if I asked you a question, he would ask a flip question <laughs> to make me answer it. And I'm like, ah, you Jedi mind tricked me again. But <laughs> he's, he's also just been a really good friend. Um, and and when, I, when I reflect all throughout my timeline, like all of my bosses, all of my relationships, like even Scott LaLiberty, who I mentioned, uh, to even Glenn Foster at J.P. Morgan Chase, who was my boss when I was there for a couple of years. Um, all of these people I invited to my wedding. Not all of them came, but like, like Scott came to my wedding, you know, like that was like my first boss boss. And it's crazy to me years later after I'd left the company that he would show up to my wedding. It was flattering, you know, and like those are the things that I'm super appreciative about of these relationships that manifest into long-term relationships. Like Glenn is over at TD as the CISO uh, and I've spoken with him a couple of times throughout the years and it's, it's fun to stay in touch and also just having those influences to see how they've navigated because, you know, this is my first CISO gig. Now I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's next? Here's the thing. I can go ask any point in time. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's great to have great mentors and, uh, and just people that you really appreciate and, and you don't feel like, you know, there is any hidden agendas there 
I can I can attest to myself that I also have a few of those, uh, and it's been great. Yeah. What, what's the one common myth uh, about your profession that that you think you'd like to debunk? Common myth about like uh, I don't know. What's what's a common myth of security? Like uh, we all wear black leather jackets and. <laughs> You know, we're running Nmap nonstop against the internet. I don't know. Um, well, uh, you know, I would think, <laughs> I would think, you know, all those movies where you see all those uh, cool screens and pieces of codes running up and down, and you know, like fictitious IP addresses, stuff like that, that that, that you could uh, debunk or anything, uh, like anything at all. I mean, it's it's, it's as exciting. It. It's ex yeah. exciting as you make it. You know, if you really like penetration testing, and that's that's where I started a good portion of my career was breaking stuff. Uh, but I found myself to be more of a builder, like I mentioned. Um, so how do you build a program? How do you take something that's a pinpoint into calling someone's project, product, application? Bad. You're like, this is low quality. Here's why. We don't validate any inputs. Well, what does that actually mean? How does it translate? When you get into pen testing or hacking, um, it's like maybe 60, 70% report writing and communication, right? And then there's like the 30 to 40% where you're actually breaking and testing. And that's the part that gets maybe not as fun. So a lot of the folks that get into the security space, they want to break because they think it's cool. And while, while breaking is great, it doesn't always help the relationship or the culture of the company when all you do is show up, say, hey, you know what? I came and did an audit of your house. Everything's broken. That window's broken. That door's broken. Those locks are broken. Good day. You know what's better? The person that shows up and say, hey, I think this is what probably happened. Um, maybe you left the key under the mat and someone opened the door or, you know, got broken open. And why don't we do this together? Why don't we figure out how to fix this and make it a better situation? Because I'm part of this house too. And that's the company's name. And I think when you take that approach with, again, empathizing and understanding you're the same team, the relationship changes. And the, the myth there is really, it takes hard work to build those relationships. And it's not easy. It's easy to say, like, I told the developer that their code sucked and they need to fix it. What's really hard is saying, okay, I appreciate that we did a null check and that there was something in the field, like the form field of this web application. But now let's talk about the context of what we expect to come into this form. Is it a string of characters? What is that string? Should it ever be 6,000 characters? No, okay. So let's start to rationalize maybe what is a regex. If we can't use a framework, let's play whack-a-mole, fix that little piece of code, and then move forward. But that live coaching to me is the harder work. And it's not as, I would say, as, as like fun or sexy as breaking stuff. But I, I am more inclined for that relationship building because if I broke it, I sure as damn well want to be part of the fix. You know, And I think that that's one of the fallacies or the myths in this, this field is it is a little bit boring sometimes, but you can make it fun. You can absolutely make it fun if you have the right definition. Well, if only I could have you as, you know, the sales guy for our penetration testing team. And, you know, just <laughs> because it, I mean, these guys, they love to break these. I mean, seldomly can you, do they even want to, you know, move on to, to like different roles and, and, and be involved? It's just like, it's all about breaking, all about breaking. And, and, you know, we were able to narrow down their reporting, writing component to like a minimum. So that's what gets them very excited. 
and they're yep. very good at it, I think. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I, you might be the exception here. <laughs> That's yeah, what I'm saying. I, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like I, I've definitely, as I spent the majority of my career in AppSec, I found a lot of like-minded individuals. Uh, but by and large, a lot of people like breaking. And I get it. <laughs> but like, let's let's use uh, Dick Cheney's pacemaker as an example. You know, the remote hacking, uh, Jack Barnaby, awesome awesome security researcher, rest in peace. But he did so much good stuff in the community, but he also helped fix quite a bit too. And I think that's the element where you curtail it. Do you want to be known as the person that was identifying these vulnerabilities? Or do you want to be known as the person that identified responsibly disclosed work with the company and helped solve a problem that could have been or was likely exploited in the world? And you made it just a little bit more secure. And that's why, like, I, I don't know if you know Jeremiah Grossman, like, I've always liked his mantra mentality. And he was someone I looked up to in the beginning and throughout my career. But the first time I met him, second time, the multiple times I've hung out with him, like, the more I get to know him, the more I appreciate what he was trying to do with White Hat at the beginning. And now he's doing that over a bit discovery with trying to understand attack surface for companies to just get the intelligence to manage effectively. But what would you say the main concerns of CISO nowadays are? Okay. It's contextual. Every CISO, I, I don't think there's a hard blueprint. Yes, there are frameworks. Yes, there are things like NIST cybersecurity framework that I think are fantastic. Uh, yes, there's compliance that we all have to focus on, but every company is different. What does getting hacked mean to you as an organization is completely different than what my company is, right? Like you, you have pen test results, security assessment results. How much PII do you have compared to my team and my company? You know, we, we have some cloud applications and customers. Uh, we have some managed services, but we also have on-prem. On-prem is much different. Like how we manage those relationships for deploying data analytics software inside of a company, the onus on controls is much different. So the stress of on-prem is much different when it comes to patch management yeah. as opposed to cloud management. I am stressed who has access, what data do we have? was too much granted as far as permissions to a database credential. Uh, how did they configure their SSH? Oh, wait, is their database just completely exposed to the internet and it works for our tech, but that means any other hacker on the internet can get access to it. Like, how are we approaching those conversations is very contextual to my realm. Uh, so I think for a lot of CISOs, the trend line patterns that we're looking at as we go into this year, you know, I think it's always going to be, you know, malware is, is, is top of mind anytime, right? It's just a matter of like, what is the definition of malware to you? Is it getting onto PC endpoints? And if you care about those, but I think most CISOs should be treating their endpoints as temporal, disposable, like, right? Like, and you should be able to spin up very quickly to another asset. Uh, but if you're thinking that, you know, your CTO's laptop is the keys to the kingdom, you probably have to change your secrets management routine, right? You have to change how the company's run. And I think last year, spelled the narrative more strongly towards resiliency, right? Resiliency yeah. in the cy like cyber supply chain has become very critical. And I think just even regular physical supply chain has become critical. Like look at toilet paper, hand sanitizer and masks, you know, the game changed. Uh, but understanding what does it take for your org to be resilient? And what does that mean to you? Because the business risk tolerance was much different before but understanding, okay, all of our employees are going to work from home. Were we ready? That was probably a rough question for a lot of CISOs that are like, well, I expected IT to do this, that, and the other thing. It's like, was that part of your disaster recovery testing or your business continuity planning? No. 
okay, so what are you going to do next? Like, like in my world, I have this wonderful human being called Ramon Hayes. He's our senior risk manager in compliance. Uh, in, in our business continuity, we've had pandemic in there. Like pandemic response has always been in there. And, and part of our plan was to, we fully executed it, but we never thought we'd have to execute it to this extent. And I think that was a big lesson learned going into this year is like the documentation, the pre-planning, having a lot of that resiliency in mind in advance of those moments, you feel more confident about where you're spending the time. So as you're going into 2021, what's top of mind for CISOs now? Hopefully you've taken your lessons learned. You've adjusted your budget going into this cycle. Hopefully you've survived the previous year emotionally and mentally and physically, because I think it took a toll on a lot of us. So now I think human capital is one of the bigger changes that we're really thinking about. And human capital is how all of our organizations pretty much work anyway. But with respect to emotional health and well-being, you know, and I think we, we've seen it with insider threat many, many times before. Insider threat has its moments and it disappears. But, you know, when people act, it's out of opportunity, but also out of that stress. So when that stress at home that we mentioned before is too much and say they can't pay their mortgage, their partner lost their job, how, how are you helping to alleviate that stress or how are you predicting outcomes that could be bad? And, you know, I think our company, SciSense did a phenomenal job with saying, okay, we can't do certain thing. We can't just give everyone a million dollars and say, we're good. What we can do is plan for our books, make some adjustments. Now, you know, what else we can do? We can create these things called, uh, you know, wellness days where people have extra time to take off and be present. We can make sure that people have assurance that we're not going to do another round of termination because we already did, you know, one adjustment to make sure we were good for the year. And now we're great for this year because we made hard decisions up front. We were as transparent as we could as part of that. And then shifting that narrative to how do we keep the bright people on the ship for this next part of the journey? Because it's about to be a completely different transformation ahead. And so I think human capital is going to be a big part of how you're managing your security profile even more going into this year. Yeah, and, and, uh, and talking about last year, what does your uh, daily routine look like nowadays? I mean, it's bursty, uh, is the way I describe it. Uh, before it was like, wake up, run into the office, uh, do my thing for nine to 12 hours, leave, go work out, eat dinner, maybe do some yoga, hang out with my wife, read a whole bunch of information, do some emails. And now it's, it's commingled so much more. Uh, so I don't think there is a daily routine. I actually, I kind of like the entropy there. Uh, it feels like every 24 hours is unique unto its own, even though it's a little monotonous here and there, if you don't have like those peaks and valleys. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, for me, uh, I'll, I'll give you my average day. It's, it's wake up for my first meeting, whatever time that may be. And uh, sometimes it's internal. Sometimes it's external with things like SVCI or someone I'm consulting with. Uh, I have to work around that schedule to slot some of those things in. Sometimes it just has to be really early to take those calls. But also working with an Israeli company, sometimes my calls are really early because it's at the end of the business day. Sometimes my calls are at midnight because it's better to showcase that I'm willing to have those calls and not make everyone always stay up late to meet my schedule. Uh, so I'll typically work like three to four hours in the morning, uh, enjoy a lunch. Uh, I've started to take naps because that's been really a game changer for me in this part of my life. Uh, I'll do a couple hours on the back end in the afternoon. I'll go live my life outside as much as I can for maybe two to three hours. I'll come back, eat my dinner like we talked about, 
And then I consume a lot of information at that point. Uh, so let it be media content, pleasure work. It's all kind of the same for me, like reading about research that's happening. Uh, like that pseudo escalation vulnerability that came out last week. Um, even though it's been around for like 11 years, it's very interesting to read into like how that happened, how it manifested, how it can be exploited so trivially and why it matters. But then from there, I'm reading something that's interesting to me, but I contextualize it and I'll say, cool. All right. Well, I need some help. It's 3 a.m. I should probably went to bed, but I was like really taken by this story. Now let me go communicate it to my peers in Tel Aviv to say, I need help. I'm going to go to bed. I, I think this could be a big issue one day. Uh, and I want to circumvent us ever having a problem in the future. So can I get some analysis? Can I get some eyes on this, this, and this? And then you tell me like, big deal, not a big deal. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I have this same conversation in the morning when I wake up six hours later, sometimes four, and I go and cycle again. So for me and my team, we've moved more to a bursty model because it's now 24 seven, like security was always 24 seven. The difference is we're not physically in the office. So we get to balance our schedules a lot more effectively. Uh, I think consumption of information is a little bit easier because I don't feel I'm going to say as guilty. Like if I'm in an office and I'm picking up a book and reading it, I would never do that. That's, that's at home for me. That's at home. Like I don't want to be there showcasing. Like I have time to read. I have time to read at home. That's where I do it. But now it's like, I want to catch up on this chapter in this book because, you know, maybe it's going to help me in my job. Like, I'm okay doing that, but I have my whole environment here. There are less distractions. I'm more efficient, but I also have the trust inside of my team, with my team, and from my leadership that we're doing the right things at the end of the day because of the outcomes. Yeah, and I don't think you're, you know, I'm not sure if your schedule is... Uh... It's like a common one, but definitely I think more and more professionals are, are adopting like, uh, you know, schedules similar to yours, you know, integrating like pleasure activities and and, and running and, and sports and, and meals and et cetera into your daily routine, because otherwise you would probably go insane. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just break it, breaking the monotony of like, it's, it's too easy. And I think people realized it. It's too easy to work, especially if you're passionate about your job. And then when mm -hmm. you have nowhere to go, well, it's very easy to kick a lot of butt in your role and keep working and having great outcomes because then you start getting addicted to those serotonin hits. And I think that's the dangerous part. And going back to the balance piece, yeah. like you have you have to break it up. If you don't, it could spiral out of control where all you do is work until you get frustrated, fed up, and you know, quit your job or make a you know a regrettable decision because you're just so pent up and you've not <laughs> taken care of yourself. Yeah. Uh, well, look, I, I want to be respectful of your, of your time. So I'm going to just, just ask you a couple of, uh, you know, uh, brief questions before we sure. can wrap this up. Um, so one question about vendors. So like my first questions uh, about vendors is uh, actually about myself. If you could step into my shoes as, a, you know, this, as the CEO of a consulting group, what would you say, what would you ask yourself uh, for that matter, you know, that you that some vendors in my position, in your opinion, have not asked themselves. Does that make sense, the question? I, th I think it makes sense. Uh, I would have to be in your shoes to know, like, what are the demands and then what are the goals? Because, like, you know, how the company started to what you want to achieve, like, that, that's, that's how I would drive that sort of lesson learned, right? Like, if it was bootstrapped compared to, like, it was funded. If you have someone to report to and tell about everything, like that's different because you also have that network in association with it versus if you bootstrapped it with two of your friends and you got to this point, 
it's a much different journey. It's less stress, but also the connections may not be there as well. Um, I don't know. I think when it comes to consulting, what, what I really appreciate, uh, my lessons and takeaways was partnerships with universities. You know, I think consulting is a great, fantastic place to start your career. And some people, their entire career as a consultant. Uh, for me, it gave me an opportunity to see not only the world, like legitimately, I traveled around the world, going to Philippines, China, like places I never thought I would go for work, especially in my first job. But I'm out there, you know, performing penetration tests, looking at call centers, doing all sorts of activities. And it was really rewarding. But it also let me see into different industries. And I ultimately chose financial institutions because that's where the most amount of focus was for information security practices and budget. Um, so that that lent itself to a really great learning opportunity. So, so I think when I look at, you know, consulting, I've chatted with a few other consulting companies, like have a partnership with, you know, one of the near and dear universities that you have and your, you know, relational pocket or connectivity, or maybe it's a military group uh, out of the Israeli army, right? Like having that relation there and that connectivity, because then you could start to foster a pipeline of great people and great relationships, because not only one, are they going to have a good opportunity to learn? But two, you have people like yourself already bought into your alma mater or your former teammates that you're like, I want to help. I will make sure we have a space for one to two people every year from this place. And we're going to go back and we're going to teach. We're going to share information and we're going to just make this world better and stronger through this relationship. Okay. Um, well, thank you for that. That's definitely interesting. Um, I might uh, want to take this offline with you. Uh, <laughs> Happy to help. Because it's more, yeah. Uh, so shifting gears and let's talk briefly about vendors. What's, and, and I know we've touched on that before, but what's the most annoying sales pitch that you've encountered? The, the, it's not even a sales pitch. The most annoying activity, the biggest offense I've ever had. And uh, I've been contemplating even sharing this because you, you kind of pitched that question over and I reflected back and I'm like, Oh yeah, it was the time a salesperson that I've been ignoring on email because I'm very familiar with the service. It's actually a high quality service. I had used it in two of my previous shops. I would absolutely buy it again. At this point, I'm I'm like 50-50. Like I know the CEO well enough that I'd still like ask if it made sense, but it didn't make sense for the startup I, I was at, Periscope Data or the current one now. But we, we, we had a situation where this person just happened to be in town and happened to stop by our office and happened to talk to our security guard. The security guard knew me too well. And because of the conversation being so natural, he was able to conversate and get through our security door. And the security guard was walking this person towards me as I was walking in between meetings. And he has this pamphlet of stuff. And I remember being like, I know this person but why do I know this person? Where are they from? And they walked up. They're like, Hey Ty, I'm such and such from so-and-so. And I'm like, in my head, I lost my mind. I'm like, how is, how is this moment even happening? Why did my control break down with my security guard? Why is this person think this is acceptable for them to enter and interrupt my day? Um, and how do they not realize that I'm never going to do business with this person because that is too intrusive. You know, a phone call is intrusive enough. You showed up not only on my doorstep, but you socially engineered your way in to have us standing in front of here. And I'm next to these people. And it's like, that's a hard pass for me. And uh, I, I will never forget that moment. Um, 
had some hard conversations with our security guard team, uh, you know, and also just gave that feedback. Like, I think it's unacceptable that you would ever think that's, that's okay to come into the building like that. Like, I, I, I don't know where you think that that is logistically appropriate. So I definitely have that, that moment in my back pocket. That's annoyed me because emails or whatever calls, you know, it is what it is, but that one, that one took it for me for my entire life of doing this for 15 years. Like I've never had someone go to that extreme. The other one that I think is fun, Ben, is when they send you a box and it's just shipping goods. And then there could be a place for like a, a free thing. I remember someone sent me what was supposed to be a Google Nest. And I remember opening the box and I'm like, I can't accept this. But then like, oh, it's empty. <laughs> and to get the actual Nest, I have to message them. So thinking in my head, I'm like, I'm never going to talk to them because they're not helping the world. They're creating shipping costs. They're using materials. And if they ever send those devices, they're going to use more materials to ship it. Uh, so it's little things like that, that I, I really think the human nature shows based on the decisions that you're making and how to interact or get that first touch. So I, I really like it when people go through trusted networks or connections or better yet, when a CISO has a, a request or an idea or a thing, they go to their network and someone's like, hey, yeah, now I got a friend over there. I'll put you in touch. Those are my favorite because when I reach out and say, I need a training vendor, I think it's this one. And I have a friend say, oh yeah, I worked with this person. They took care of me. I've known them for like two sales jobs. It should be fine. Like that, that to me is the way I like to interact is coming from a level of trust through someone I trust to get down to someone that should theoretically be trusted. Yeah, and I think most, well, at least most CISOs that I've talked to, uh, they feel the same. And yep. let me tell you what, what look, when we hit the 100th episode here, I have a good feeling you your first story might might be on the Hall of Fame as, the, as number one. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have to get back to you. With I that. get very heated on that one. It brought back a lot of emotional response. I'm like... Ooh, you know, <laughs> it, it definitely upset me in that moment. I remember going to my desk being like, what the heck just happened? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I'm really appreciative of, of the fact that you're not swearing right now. As, as we I, have, do uh, yeah. I do my best. I do my best. I know it must be difficult for you. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but anyhow, so, so what is it that you are looking for in a vendor? And I think you alluded to that in, you know, in, during this conversation. Uh, did you have any like specific tips here? Um, so it depends on the persona that I'm playing. Like if it's as a CISO, it's different than as like a member of Silicon Valley CISO investment group. Uh, that's different than an advisor role. It all just depends on what, what I'm working at and what is the goal. Uh, but typically with the vendor, the, the mainline thing for me as a practitioner, as someone using the service, can I influence your backlog? period, right? If you're selling me a product or a service and I've been down this path, I was on a Fortify's tech advisory board for like seven years. Uh, so static analysis, dynamic scanning, like all that fun stuff. There were times where I could not even influence that backlog and I was paying them a ton of money with, you know, I was at a FinTech company and it was crazy to me, like what I would have to do to escalate, like authentication's broken. I don't know if it's just my platform, my environment or this one subsidiary of ours, but I cannot get it to work. I need help. And then if I can't get that help, that's a really negative sign for me. So when a vendor becomes 
really not a partner and you're just treated as a number, like that's a concern for me. Like if you're just not being prioritized of fixes or bug fixes or functionally the product no longer works, you have a big problem. And I've definitely had that before where uh, I had a vendor and there was a massive gap with the way the operational process worked. And it was three months prior to our renewal. They were asking me to renew again. And I said, you must be out of your mind to think I'm going to renew when I can't even get a firm commitment that you're gonna address my issue well into my next contract. And you told me two quarters as a practitioner that works in SDLCs, software development life cycles all the time. If you're going two releases beyond what we're talking about, that's Tomorrowland. That's never, never land. Like I, I don't believe it, but if you give me a hard date, that's truly committed with resources and I know it's going to happen, maybe, but I, I, re I reflect on that one a little bit too, is like having those moments where someone's trying to get you to renew, but they're not meeting your needs. Why would you stick around? So influencing that backlog has always been a critical point as a CISO, as a practitioner. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think you already answered uh, my next question, but just, just, I just wanted to run this by you again. So how can vendors actually connect with you in a non-intrusive manner? If there is any way at all to do that, or is it just, you know, you going back to your network and you're identifying the need and, and set the, and set like the, the, the requirements in place. Let the tech speak for itself. Like I actually, I'm fine with cold emails. Uh, for me, like cold emails are fine. If they bought it, sure, why not? But what's not okay is just like the automated email follow-ups that are not contextualized in any way, shape or form. And especially if it's like, you know, dear insert name, and then it has like your last name. Like I don't read those, right? Like, because something's wrong, broken with their automation flow. Uh, but LinkedIn's a great way for me. Like, you know, uh, let's interact. Like show me that you're, you're actually spending some cycles and understand that if you're qualifying me as a lead, um, you know, to say I'm a person that could theoretically be sold to, show me. Uh, because if you just think I'm going to buy your stuff, but I have no use for it, like why, why am I going to have that conversation? The other hard part is like, not all your vendors are going to know that you may have a different solution. And also I'm not going to tell you that information because there's no benefit for me to tell you that. Uh, but you know, I think LinkedIn is a great way to connect. I suck on Twitter, so I don't, I don't, I just, I, don't, I can't figure it out. It's just not for me. And then, um, yeah, you know, I think there's just let your tech speak for itself. Cause if your tech is good, if your service is good, if your people are good, they're going to have the impact. And if they have the impact, there's going to be gravitas. If that email really talks about the tech really specifically and what they're solving for, how they're doing it, you include your brochureware directly in the email. Fantastic. What's even better is if you include a link to where your video content is of how it works, that to me gets me excited. And if I read an interesting description, I will absolutely follow up. If I read the same old description that has no context, uh, I'm not going to spend the cycles. Okay, thank you. Um, do you have any other CISOs you'd like to name drop as 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 uh, as persons that you look up to? And I think you've mentioned some <laughs> when when I asked you that question about like influential people, but I'm not sure if if, if these people fall under the same category. Yeah, I think it's all it's always like it's time bound a little bit. So it depends on what I'm working on. And I, I think that's where 
It just depends. You know, like Joel Fulton, uh, former CISO of Splunk, like I've gotten to know him through uh, the Bay Area CISO community, the Information Security Leadership uh, Foundation, which I think it's been cool to see someone that was a CISO that is now a founder. Um, I have no aspirations of being a founder. I think it's a tough job. Uh, hats off to you because I think that journey is like, you're all in. I think it's great. For me, I like to dabble in a lot of things and I like that, that a little bit of entropy. Um, but Joel has been a really inspirational person and in the way he communicates, how he articulates things. Uh, he has this startup called Lucidum, um, has come through SBCI, like that's, we're connected that way. But outside of that, before it, I was always a fan. And having a chance to have talked to him in person, uh, it was really valuable. The other person that um, more recently is Roger Hale. Uh, so he had worked at Lending Club before my time. He's now the CISO over at Big ID. And uh, Roger and I connected through, again, Bay Area CISO group. And it was just like a natural relationship, chatting, shooting the stuff. And there were also like these little glimmers of like one week where I was going to Israel. He was already out there. He was like, you should come to this meetup. And I'm like... Only if I were there three days earlier, I would totally go. And it's it's cool to have that connection. Uh, but Roger did some interesting stuff as like a uh, CISO in residence. And then he ended up in a portfolio company. And, and I look at that track of like, oh, that's interesting. Like I still haven't figured out what my full journey is, but it's always based on the moment of what I'm thinking about. And then I observe and then I ask questions because if I ask questions, these are amazing people that that will answer those questions back. And I think the, the, the challenge is usually creating the opportunity or finding the time to go spend it with them. Uh, but now more than ever, I think with Zoom and the way we are interacting, it's actually become a lot easier. It's a matter of you taking the time to message or someone reach out to me on LinkedIn, I will pretty much respond. Now it's just a matter of like, does it make sense for me to like engage and say, cool, we should do like a virtual coffee. Uh, so on the flip side to that, I'll just offer that out there. Like I've had random people hit me up on LinkedIn uh, turned into a phone call that turned into them getting into a job. And some of those people have literally become CISOs and their peers. And it's cool to see. Um, so yeah, I, I think those are two that, that are kind of current state front of mind for me. Okay. Okay. A couple of uh, quick, uh, like a couple of quick questions before we can wrap this up. Um, so I know you mentioned LinkedIn as, as probably the best way to reach you online. Is that correct? Or do you have like any other like blogs or any anything else that you do? Nah, like I used to write a little bit on Tech Beacon. Uh, I don't do that too much anymore. I've done uh, some other stuff here and there. I, I think the format for me, which is natural speaking language, uh, I'm a better just off the cuff. Like I will tell you how I feel and the thought process behind it uh, compared to sitting down and articulating in long format. Like I don't get as much excitement. And to me, it's this, Ben. So like this connection here, just having had a chance to talk to you today, but also in the prep call before this. So I really appreciate a chance to truly connect with people. Um, so yeah, LinkedIn is definitely the best way to get a hold of me. I have an Instagram account. It's mostly for my martial arts side of my world. And then again, Twitter, like I mentioned, I suck at. I got on that new thing. What's it called? Clubhouse. I can't figure it out. It's just like people chatting. It's kind of like Discord. I, I still haven't figured that one out, but I'm always exploring. Uh, maybe, you know, find me on a new platform and I'll try my best to engage or interact. But LinkedIn is my tried and tested, like yeah. the, the flows, the interactions, the tracking, the alerting, like it's just easy to navigate consistently. Yeah, same, same for me. Um, so moving on to uh, probably the final question here. If, and, oh. and this one is a, is, is a fun one for me to, to ask. If you had unlimited funds, what do you think you would do with your life? 
I'm kind of doing it. I don't have unlimited funds, but I'm, I'm doing what I would do in my life. And uh, when, when I started information security, I didn't make a lot of money. I didn't think information security was going to be a high paying gig either. Um, I'm thankful of the journey to get to this point. Uh, I've had a lot of cool opportunities, outcomes, uh, but I think I'm doing it already. It's like, I'm going to be a security practitioner. I'm going to do a lot in martial arts. I'm going to have creative art projects. Uh, but the mainline theme among all of that is I invest in people, uh, let it be myself or others, but I like to help and I like to partner. And again, it's that problem solving and building. So even if I had unlimited money, I don't know, I'd probably start like a, a startup funding committee for NPOs and security tech startup, because that's the skills I have that I can understand. Um, and I want to help these companies, especially for the folks like I've been advising for this company, Nightfall AI for coming up on almost three years now. Like we, we've been partners before they incubated the idea of data leakage in the cloud. And it's been such an energizing journey. Like, I don't, I don't think they always know how much energy I get from the journey, but when I work with people that see the world as there are no impediments and anything is possible, it excites me. It gives me energy and it keeps me going. Uh, as opposed to like, if I'm at that really old stodgy company where the only, only so much is possible, only so much of tomorrow work will get done. Only so much will happen before the end of the week. Cause it's Friday. Like that is draining. To me, it's very energizing when you work with folks that are dreamers and what's better is when they're doers. Um, so I, I would probably be doing a lot of what I'm doing now. Uh, other than that, I, I joke with my wife, I'd probably be a cat tender. I just created a new term this year. Uh, I'd probably have like a cat cafe and I just, you know, foster a lot of kittens and dogs <laughs> and animals. And I probably have a funny farm outside of that. You know, I just really like animals and wildlife, but you know, again, it's about helping. It's about fun. It's about building. And that's really what I would do with unlimited funds. Yeah, you actually, I think there's a quote, I think it's by Mark Twain, find a job you enjoy doing and you will never have to work a day in your life. Particularly it's not work. That. Yeah. It's not work. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm very grateful that, that I've gotten to this place, but the difference as a CISO, like, you know, you deal with a lot of us, we live on borrowed time. You yes. know, the average, the average CISO is like 17 months in role. I'm coming up on three years. I am thankful. I'm so appreciative of the team and the culture and part of the build. But in my head, I constantly think I'm on borrowed time. And it changes your relationship with work because I'm also confident that even if this journey were over tomorrow, I'd, I'd find some other cool things to do, you know? And, and yes, it's important to have a roof. Yes, it's important to make sure my wife is comfortable too. But a big part of that journey is the confidence in yourself with the skills that you've built and really your internal drive to know that almost anything is achievable if you dedicate the time, resources, and energy to it. So I'm, I'm with that 100% with Mark Twain's quote. Okay. Well, I think we're out of time, Ty. So I just, okay. let me just, you know, uh, thank you again for taking the time. I know that everybody's busy nowadays, even more so. Uh, so just again, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I really, uh, enjoyed it. I appreciate your insights. I really like the way you structured, like your answers, you know, as, as you said, you, you, you provide the answer, but then you also give the rationale behind it. And that was very, very insightful for me. And I'm hopeful our listeners will enjoy it as well. And, and hopefully we could, we could also, uh, you know, someday meet in person. <laughs> I hope so. It's not, yeah. I don't think it's going to be a security conference this year, but thank you for having me. 
Um, you know, I, I think you've had a lot of great guests so far, like Hillock and Ian are the ones that I know. And I, I think they offer a lot of great insight and perspective. Like I learned a lot from listening to Ian's. Um, I, I welcome other CISOs to constantly be out there hearing the stories because we get heads down doing our thing. Sometimes it's hard to come up, get that air and get that perspective. And I appreciate what you're doing with taking time because I know it's not just like the hour and a half that we do the chat here. It's the many hours of editing, modifying, creating the questions, thinking about the next steps. But thank you for generating the platform. I hope this is helpful for those that want to maybe become a CISO one day or want to be a great AppSec practitioner. And again, if they have questions, they have unlimited questions, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Won't always be a fast response, but I'll do my best to respond <laughs> if it's professional and courteous. Yeah. So thank you again and enjoy the weekend. Cheers. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for another episode of CISO's Insiders. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more professional content, please check us out on social media.